0: Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. Good morning, church. I um, It is my great delight. I'm super grateful this morning um, to introduce, we have a guest preacher. Um, he's not really a guest to a lot of you. A lot of you know him already, but I still feel I'm always going to take the opportunity to do a little intro for him, um, because I love him dearly. Uh, We have Pastor Kevin Jamison with us this morning, and Pastor Kevin is the lead pastor at Sojourn uh, Sojourn East Community Church down in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm super grateful. I've said this before when he is here, that uh, our pulpit here is always open to him uh, for a couple reasons. Um, And it's just simply this. One, you know, he's been he was a faithful pastor here. He was, for those of you who don't know, he was a founding pastor. He planted this church, what is it, I think 17-ish years ago or something like that. Um, and so I'm thankful to for to him that God used him, and he uh, didn't reject that calling to try to figure out what it meant to plant a church alongside of a, a group of faithful friends And many years ago and did that work and did that faithfully. Um, And as much as that's a, a huge piece of our story and my story, and I'm grateful for that, another piece of it is just that, you know, he's been a steadfast, faithful follower of Jesus and friend to me as I've struggled and fi- tried to figure out and wrestled with what it means to be a pastor and what it means to be a preaching pastor. And so it's just been the, the amount of conversations that I've had with him and back porch conversations. And, and I want to thank his wife, Stephanie, who's here and for allowing all that time and a lot of phone calls that went into long walks and things like this. And we've re- I just, Kevin knows what it means um, to wrestle with leadership. He knows what it means to wrestle with what it means to preach uh, week in and week out, even when you feel like you have nothing fresh to say. Um, He knows what it means to wrestle with decisions within a church that are hard, and you don't exactly know what to do. Um, He just knows all of those things, and um, he knows what it means to feel lonely in leadership and to wrestle with that and to see God move in ordinary ways, behind the scenes, within the church week after week, month after month, year after year, and he's just been faithful. And through all of those things, what I appreciate about Pastor Kevin is he's never acted like some mythical creature, which is what sometimes pastors and preachers can do. Instead, he's just acted like a human being. Um, He's lived out a life of being faithful as a human being before me and being kind to me as I've called him many times and asked him questions, and I just appreciate that honesty and the integrity that he's always modeled, and above all, he's just been one who has faithfully paid attention to and tried to wrestle with this gospel of grace that uh, we try to live out and preach here. And so I'm so, so grateful for him, and so um, it's gonna, it's a delight that we have him here. He, I try to get him up here as much as I can for you. You will be blessed by him and uh, the opportunity that he has to preach here. So I just, I'm going to read his text, um, and then I'll invite him up, and I'll pray for him as well. So um, this is kind of closing out our Proverbs series, our wisdom series, and, and what it looks like for us to live out a life of wisdom, and so we've got a list here for you, and you can just stay in your seat and kind of hopefully, you know, tune in and hear these. First, I'm going to read out of Proverbs 13, verse 3. He who guards his mouth protects his life, but the one who opens his lips invites his own ruin. This is Proverbs 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. This is actually in Ecclesiastes 7, 21 and 22. Do not pay attention... To every word people say, except for when I'm talking. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. And lastly, we have Proverbs 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than a warrior, and he who controls his temper is greater than one who captures a city. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me this morning? Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, another opportunity to gather as your people, to wrestle with your word. I pray your spirit opens our ears, opens our eyes, opens our hearts, and that we can relax in, settle in to hear from you, to be convicted, to be encouraged, to do whatever that you feel like you need to do in our lives so that we might be changed, so that we might leave in such a way this morning that we want to live out what it means to be Christians before you, looking to you for your great grace and salvation. Be with Pastor Kevin this morning. Help him to speak with courage, with clarity this morning and with grace. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here uh, to see old friends and hopefully make some new friends. Last week after church, I was talking with some congregants and they asked about our family's Thanksgiving plans. And I told them we were coming up here to spend time with our family uh, and that I was going to preach here. And they asked, do you still have relationships up there? And I said, oh yeah, I've got some really good friends that you know, go back over 20 years, and one of the per- people I was talking to said, that's a rare thing, isn't it? To have relationships that span decades. And it seems to be becoming more rare these days. As we all know, our society is continuing to fracture into smaller and smaller factions that we have the red versus blue, we have you know, the, the split over climate, over our understanding of sexuality, over Israel, Palestine. It seems like any issue that comes up, people are dividing over. And relationships are dividing. Sometimes even families are dividing. I would guess that the majority of us here have probably lost a significant friendship in the last five to ten years. Maybe in the last two to three. That friendships... They're, they're, they're not doing so well in our culture at this moment. There's family fractures as well. And our culture is not helping things. Our culture, by and large, is kind of moving more and more individualistic and celebrating more and more this kind of sense of like, you do you, don't let anyone stop you, you define yourself, you have no obligation to anyone, anywhere. I recently read an article by Claire Coffey in which She names this new reality when she writes, everyone on social media is asserting their boundaries. Everyone is cutting toxicity out of their life. Everyone is prioritizing their own healing journey and giving up on one-sided relationships. Everyone is disarming the narcissist, protecting their space, deleting that number, going no contact, and they're being celebrated for it. And you know, sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes we need to draw lines and put up boundaries. But what's happening in our day is people are, are dismissing relationships when they get hard. And we're doing it and then we celebrate online with one another about how we've you know, cut off the toxic relationships. You'll be celebrated for your bravery, but the flip side of this is that we as a society are profoundly lonely. Americans are more lonely now than they've ever been in history. Over 50% of Americans have less than three friends. And something like ten to twelve percent of Americans, one out of ten people, don't have a single person they can call friends. And the challenge in all of this is relationships. That how do we 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 have our ideal about relationships, our dream of what relationships should be? A lot of it's been you know cultivated by Hollywood. I've noticed that a lot of people struggle with relationships because they watch Friends, you know, when they were younger, and they just assume that that's what all human relationships are going to be like. They don't realize that that's a scripted show and that relationships are a lot messier than this. But we need relationships. We are created for relationship. God created Adam. He declared it's not good for man to be alone. I mean, you can even look up the, the research that physical health deteriorates when relational health deteriorates. There is a correlation between the two. People at their best, are amazing and wonderful. And they bring us such joy and life and laughter and hope. People at their worst are difficult and confounding, and they drive us crazy. Amen? Amen. Right? And so the challenge is, like, if I were to ask you, what are the biggest joys in your life? I would guess that at the top of the list is a relationship or a number of relationships. If I were to ask you, what's the biggest headache and heartache and pain in your life, I would guess that at the top of the list would be relationships. This is where I love this series on wisdom, because relationships require a ton of wisdom. Navigating relationships well, forging new relationships, keeping relationships, deepening relationships, it requires a lot of wisdom and courage. And so I love this emphasis, and we're going to talk about what The scriptures teach us about wisdom in relationships. How do we do relationships well with one another, with friends, with family? And there are three points that come from the book of Proverbs that we see. The wise, the first thing they do is they guard their lips. The second thing they do is they guard their ears. And then the last thing is they guard their hearts. Starting with the first one, the wise guard their lips If you're familiar with the Bible, this shouldn't be new to you, but one of the things the Bible says again and again is that a wise person doesn't say everything that they think, that they know how to keep their mouth shut, that they don't always say what they're thinking or feeling. In the book of Proverbs, we're told a lot and warned a lot about the fool. And one of the characteristics of the fool is that they they just talk a lot. And they say a lot of things, and they don't think about what they're saying and the implications of what they're saying. Proverbs 18, 17, we didn't read it, but it says, The mouth of the fools are their undoing, and their lips are a snare to their very lives. Elsewhere, Proverbs say that fools multiply words, that they just don't think before they speak. And as a result, they say things that hurt others. They say things that hurt themselves and hurt their relationships. And they do this without even recognizing it. So maybe they're boasting or bragging. Maybe they, they're spreading gossip, you know, which in the church we just say it's concern or prayer request. But you're kind of just spreading, spreading some bad reports about someone. Maybe it's tearing people down. Uh, but you just talk. The fool talks. And the more they talk, the more problems they create, which means to wisely navigate relationships, we have to be a people who recognize the power of words. This is where Proverbs thirteen three comes in. He who guards his mouth protects his life, but the one who opens his lips invites his own ruin. He who guards his mouth protects his life. You know, I think we were told a lot of lies. I was told a lot of lies as a kid by society and by others, but maybe the biggest lie that I ever heard was the lie that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Like, what a lie that is. That's the most untrue thing. That we act like words can't do real harm. I mean, Proverbs 18 says the tongue has the power of life and death. Proverbs 12 said reckless words pierce like a sword. Coarse words can hurt us. And I'm guessing every single person in this room can think of a time when they were pierced by the reckless words of someone else. And some of you, you might be carrying reckless words that were said to you 30 or 40 years ago. That words are so powerful because what words do is they name things. And words attach value to things. Words communicate worth or the lack thereof. Which means we have to see that words, they really do have the power to destroy relationships, to fracture communities and churches. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight says, a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. I'll tell you, like the, there are some real joys of pastoring, real wonderful things. The, the biggest pain, I can say this, uh, it's the amount of conflict that pastors are always trying to navigate between people. And it's one of the things I've seen over the years is people just don't realize, like they they speak and they don't realize how much damage they're doing. They make a remark here about someone or they make a remark here and they don't realize how quickly that spreads throughout relationships. I heard this old fable. Uh, it's an old Jewish fable about a man who, who heard some juicy gossip about one of his neighbors. And I mean, it was like a good one. Like You hear that story, you're like, this is, this is a good story that other people are going to want to hear And so, unable to keep it to himself, he told some people. And by the end of the week, this juicy gossip had spread throughout the whole community. The only problem was the gossip wasn't true. It was exaggerated, you know, it was one-sided, and it it lacked the context. And when this man found out, he felt horrible, because he just kind of spread all of these untruths about one of his neighbors. And so he went to his rabbi, and he's like, rabbi, I screwed up. I need help. Like, what do I do? Because I kind of started, you know, the the whispers and rumors. I started it. I want to undo it. And the rabbi said, here's what I want you to do. Here's how we're going to solve this. I want you to go home and get one of your nice feather pillows. the man's like, okay, um, done. So he goes home, and he brings back the pillow, doesn't know like Is he going to take a nap? Why does he need a pillow for this meeting? And then the rabbi gave him a knife, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut the pillow open. And so he cuts the pillow open, and immediately feathers started spreading everywhere. Windows open, blowing around the house, the living room, the couch, but they're also blowing down the street. And the men sat in silence for... A few minutes and finally the rabbi spoke after you know 10 minutes of letting them blow around and he said all right go go gather all the feathers and the man's like well that's impossible there's no way i could do that and the rabbi said exactly so it's too it's impossible for you to retrieve careless reckless words that you've spoken that they get out of your hands and they spread you know what's the old saying that you know a rumor or a lie can go around the world before the truth even has time to put its shoes on. And so if we're going to navigate relationships with wisdom, the first thing we have to do is we have to recognize the power of our words. We have to recognize that we shouldn't say everything that goes through our minds. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together, he actually he talks about different ministries that we should do for one another in the church. And It's like the ministry of outreach is one, you know, the ministry of preaching, the ministry of prayer. But one of my favorite ministries that he holds forth in the book, he calls the ministry of holding one's tongue. And Mannhofer says, it must be a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. (laughs) I love that. Like, as a community, can we make a pact with one another? We're not going to say everything that we think. We're going to hold our tongue. We're going to think twice before we speak. Because we all have thoughts and judgments and concerns. We all make assumptions. We jump to conclusions. We assume the worst. It's bad enough that we have these sinful thoughts, but a wise person realizes that it's even worse when you start saying them. And so he starts, Proverbs, you've got to guard your lips. You know, I have a friend in Louisville, uh, and he's, he's wonderful. But he's just really quiet. Uh, he's like one of the most quiet people you'll ever meet. He doesn't talk all that much, and he is deeply revered by all. And I went on a backpacking trip with him, and I was like, you know, so many people look up to you, like people view you as one of the wisest people in our church. And he's like, that's just because I learned not to say much to people. (laughs) He's like, just just guarding his tongue and not talking a lot causes a lot of people to say, man, that is a wise human being. Uh, I was talking with a woman on our staff recently who I, I dearly love and care about. And she's like, you know, I realize I just talk way too much. She's like, the people that I really look up to, when I compare myself to them, I realize they say like half as many words as I do. She's like, I want you to hold me accountable to to not talking so much. Because the wise, they guard their lips. But that leads to the second one. It's hard enough to keep a tight rein on your own tongue. But what do you do when other people speak ill of you? What do you do when you're the subject of the gossip? And this is where the wise person doesn't just guard their lips, they guard their ears. You know, when someone says "A, a throwaway remark about you that's hurtful when someone makes an unfair judgment or generalization when there's old-fashioned gossip how do we respond to that and again this is where we as a society it's like if someone dares to transgress us and do wrong like we as a society we want to make them pay and we're really kind of into the sicilian justice that whatever they do to us we want to do it back to them two three or four times as much well, the book of Proverbs warns us against this, and the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not always wise to fight fire with fire. It's certainly not wise to fight gossip with gossip, and it's, it's not wise when someone says a hurtful thing to just go cold or to cut them off. Ecclesiastes offers a better way, which Matt read, and I heard a few people chuckle because it's a wonderful verse. It's Ecclesiastes 7. Don't pay attention to every word that people say. Otherwise, you might actually hear your servant cursing you, and you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Anyone convicted by this? Like, it's wonderful, right? It's like, oh yeah, I do that too. And so there's some wisdom the Bible offers us that we actually don't need to pay attention to everything that we hear. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote a book. He actually delivered a number of lectures to uh, young aspiring ministers called Lectures to My Students. And one lecture he gave, it was based off of this verse, and it was the lecture was called The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear, and it's some of the most practical wisdom I've ever read about pastoral ministry. Spurgeon writes this. He says, You cannot stop people's tongues... And therefore, the best thing is to stop your own ears and never mind what is spoken. There is a world of idle chit-chat abroad, and he who takes note of it will have enough to do. He will find that even those who live with him are not always singing his praises, and that when he has displeased his most, most faithful servants, they have, in the heat of the moment, spoken fierce words, which it would be better for him not to have heard. Who has not, under temporary irritation said that of another which he has afterward regretted. It is the part of the generous to treat passionate words as if they had never been uttered. I don't know about you, but I assume this is true. I know in my life, some of my deepest regrets are words that I said. And the problem with words are they're like a bell once it's been rung. You can't, you can apologize And you can try to make it right, but once those words leave, there's no pulling them back in. And because we all can be careless with our words, the wisdom here is to recognize that. Well, I've been careless with my words before, so I shouldn't be surprised when other people are careless with their words. And the best thing to do is probably to just ignore it. Not always, sometimes you need to address it. But oftentimes the best course of action is, is to just turn a deaf ear to what was said. This is hard for us because as a people, we're, we're quick to show ourselves grace when we sin, typically speaking. Like we're, if we're loose with our tongue, we say some things rashly. And then we're like, we justify it like, well, I was just tired. I was just hungry. You know, I was frustrated. Uh, I hadn't had a whole lot of sleep, right? We're, um, we all do this. Is that right? But then when other people do it, we instantly like go to the other extreme, like they're just a jerk. They're the worst. You know, they're always like this. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but when we're hurt by others, we just demonize them to the nth degree. And the wise person, they know the importance of hey, have one deaf ear. Not two deaf ears, like you need to hear. But not everything people say is all that important, let's be honest. You know, a couple years ago, my wife and I, we went, our whole family, we went to on a lake vacation, which was wonderful. But then I came home and I don't know if it was swimmer's ear, but I couldn't hear out of my left ear. And it's normally one of those things that I just assume would get better, you know, but after a week, I I could not hear anything, which I feel bad for my wife. It was like preparing for old age because we're sitting there. And she's having to repeat things three or four times and then she's finally like, ne- you know what? It just doesn't matter. Uh, we have a lot to look forward to together. Um, but it was kind of a good like, oh, this is what Spurgeon was talking about. And one of the things you realize is a lot of what's said it's not all that important. People talk a lot. Some things that are said are important. But there's actually a gift in not hearing every word that comes out of people's mouths. I think this, the wisdom of this proverb, it's, it's really countercultural and it's really needed in our day. Because again, we, we are a society in which more and more we are looking for people to fail and then we're looking to collect those failures so that we can prosecute our enemies. That we are a society of grievance collectors in our world, we see this, like the, the accusations, the cancellations, the damnations we make of others. And to be clear, sometimes this is really needed. There is real corruption that's been exposed. There is abuse that needs to be rooted out. There are cover-ups that have been brought to light. Praise God for that. But what I'm talking about, it's one thing to, to go after the moral rot, you know, in really evil, wicked systems. It's another thing to try to remove all sin and evil from everything that we do. Otherwise, we would have to get rid of ourselves. But in our day, we kind of just, we go after each other as a society. We celebrate victims. And now everyone in our society wants to be a victim. Everyone wants to be able to claim victimhood in some way or another. We collect these injustices that we're quick to judge, quick to, angry, quick to get angry. And the thing is, no one's better for it. Like, is anyone looking around at our society and it's like, man, you know, we've really made some great strides. We're all happier. We're walking with greater peace and wisdom and thoughtfulness over the last 10 years. Like, we're miserable. And that's where the wisdom of this proverb is to say, you know what? That doesn't lead to life. Doesn't lead to flourishing. Doesn't lead to healthy, deep, long relationships. Like, it leads to death. The path that leads to life is learning to walk in grace and mercy. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook in an offense. This is a lost art in our day, overlooking. Let me tell you how it works. Someone wrongs you. You notice that they've wronged you and you just overlook it. That's what you do. You're like, they wronged me. They did. Okay, well, let's just move forward. I'm not going to pay them back. I'm not going to wait, lie and wait like a lion in tall grass to to pounce on them at some point. I'm actually just going to overlook it and move forward and not collect the wrong that was committed against me be clear, overlooking is not always the right action, particularly in areas of abuse, destructive behavior, behavior that's eating away at a family. You don't want to overlook those things. Like, you need to bring the light to bear on deeds of darkness. But, and this is why we need wisdom, because you need wisdom to know when and when not. But I would say that a lot of times, the best thing you can do is overlook an offense, Most marriages that make it beyond 10 years, you have to learn how to do this to some degree. Otherwise, your entire marriage is talking through how you've offended each other throughout the day or throughout the week. Now, the other caveat I would offer is not everyone, or not anyone, sorry, no one can demand that you overlook an offense. I don't want this to be manipulated. You can't say to someone else, you just need to overlook how I've sinned against you. That's, that's not how it works. Overlooking is a gift that you give. It's not something that someone can demand from you. But it's often wise to practice what one of my friends calls strategic forgetting or strategic neglect. So just say that wasn't that big of a deal. In the grand scheme of things, I don't need to be all that worked up about it and I can just move on. Because a life of collecting injustices doesn't lead to flourishing. So the wise, they guard their lips. The wise guard their ears. But lastly, and this is the, the most important, but also the most challenging, the wise guard their hearts. The wise person in the scriptures, they don't, they don't just know how to control what they say. That's a good start. They also control what they hear But they're really like, the the wise person, the most challenging thing is they actually control what they feel. That they've learned, not perfectly, but they've learned how to manage their emotions, especially anger. That there is such a thing as righteous anger. There's like one verse, though, that encourages, like, be angry and do not sin. But the rest of the scriptures give great warning about anger about this, this tendency in us t- to just ramp things up, to get very emotional, to start seeing red. You guys, we all know what I'm talking about. We just had Thanksgiving with family, so we probably all <laughs> felt a little bit of it at some point. Well, the wise person, they, they're able to manage that feeling. Like when the anger is rising and you're kind of losing it, the wise person's actually able to dial it back down. This is repeatedly emphasized in the Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Why does the person who have, who's slow to anger have great understanding? Well, because they know that anger rarely does good. Sometimes it will. Sometimes anger can be leveraged by human beings for good. But typically, anger does way more harm than good. Anger usually makes us dumb. Right? We get angry, we say dumb things. I know, Like again, this is from a lot of years of navigating difficult relationships. Anger makes people exaggerate and minimize anger causes people to glorify themselves and hurt others we escalate things when we're angry and the wise person they're the one who's able to remain calm and actually able to de-escalate situations Ecclesiastes ten four says if a rulers anger rises against you Do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. I love the wisdom of that, that the teachers, what he's saying is, if the ruler, in an unjust way, gets really mad at you for something that's not your fault, so think about it. if your boss gets really angry with you and it's like, that's not even on me. The teacher says, the best thing you can do is actually just keep your head down and keep doing your work and remain calm. And watch what happens, that calmness can de-escalate situations rapidly. But that's not easy for most of us. Some of you, you were born with the calm gene. Most of us though, when we feel wronged or we feel like we've experienced an injustice, we get reactive. When we get wrongly accused or we feel mistreated, we want to respond. Remaining calm is not easy. This is where the Proverbs 16, I mean, consider these words. He who is slow to anger is better than a warrior. And he who controls his temper is greater than one who captures a city. The Bible is giving us this vision of a human being who is able to actually control their anger. And we're told they're greater than the greatest warrior. And the person who doesn't let their temper get the best of them, doesn't let their emotions get the best of them, they're greater than someone who can capture a city. And again, I hope you know some people like this. Because they're the kind of people that they bring life to you, and, and they're kind of a mystery when you encounter them. Like, you should be way more angry than you are. And it's like, yeah, I'm okay, though how do we become those kinds of people? That's the vision. I mean, when you think of the, the call Jesus has put on our lives, to be a people who turn the other cheek, who go the extra mile, who forgive. Living that vision out is very difficult. It requires someone who's able to control their emotions. And I think this is where it gets really challenging for us. Because I wish it were as simple as me telling you, like, be calmer. Right? That doesn't work, though. Definitely doesn't work in marriage. If, you know, your, your wife or your husband is really angry and you say, you just need to calm down, right? Anyone that's like, oh, that worked wonderful. Thank you. That's exactly what I needed to hear. No. <clears throat> because, because the way we're changed is not as simple as we just need more information. You know, that's where I think this notion of guarding our hearts is really important because heart in the Bible, it's not just warm, fuzzy feelings. Heart's the, the center of our being. It's the, the place where decisions are made. It's a metaphor for, for our emotions, but also our will and how we think and how we process information. And that's why Jesus spends all this time talking about guard your heart. Like, get below the surface of just the things that you do and get down to the motivations that cause you to do them. Pay attention to what's going on in the depths of your soul. You know, brain science, over the last 50 years, it's actually shed some light onto some of this, that it's helped us to understand why why it's so hard for us to remain calm when we feel wronged in a relationship. And what they found is that our most kind of primal emotions, like anger, fear, if you've ever suffered from panic attacks, you know, where you're, you're really anxious and you don't want to be, or if you've ever suffered from, can we call them anger attacks, where you're really, really angry and you don't even want to be as angry as you are, but you, your body just feels out of control. Brain science has discovered, well, that those things originate in the the brainstem, the amygdala it's like the most primal place where our hottest most intense emotions reside the prefrontal cortex the front of our brains that's actually where we develop thoughtfulness and we're able to like make wise judgments and consideration and the prefrontal cortex just as a side note it doesn't fully form until you're like 25 which is why teenagers can be dumb, because th- their brain's still developing. Not always. I'm not saying teenagers are dumb. <laughs> Teens, I'm trying to give you permission here. So when your parents are like, what are you doing? It's like, sorry, my prefrontal cortex is still, still forming. Be, bear with me. But I say all of that to just say, what brain science has found, this is the point. When, there's a, when there is a tug of war, between our rational, thoughtful, reflective side and then our primal anger, fear, amygdala side, the primal emotions always went out. That's what they found. Every single time. They actually have the power to shut down our prefrontal cortex, which is why if you've ever been really, really angry or really, really anxious, you know it makes you dumb. You do dumb things and you say dumb things and later you're like, did I really say that? Did I do that? Why do I say all of this? I'm not a brain surgeon, scientist. I say it because what I believe this is what Jesus is getting at when he says for out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. That for us to walk in wisdom in relationships, I can't just give you some tips like, "Hey, think twice before you say it," as, as helpful as that might be. To actually like walk in wisdom in relationships, it needs deep work in our souls where we're not controlled by the anger, the fear and the emotions. Of course this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to forgive us of our sins, but he also came we're told to give us new hearts. Out of the overflow of the mouth or of the heart the mouth speaks. But Jesus, he makes this promise in Ezekiel 36 that I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You know, when, when you become a Christian, you're declared righteous in God's sight. The moment of faith. Like you are viewed as a son or daughter, your sins are not held against you, you are justified. At the same time, we still have what Paul calls the, the old man, the old woman, the old self living within each of us. And the old self still believes and operates that we're loved if we do good and we're judged if we do bad. The new self knows, like, I am loved by God purely through the sacrifice of Christ. But the old self still kind of operates on, like, When I'm doing good, God's happy with me. When I'm doing bad, God's really mad with me. And as long as that old self is controlling us, of course, we're going to be anxious and angry. If we think that God's love for us is determined by our behavior, then of course we're going to double down when we misbehave, we're going to make excuses when we're anxious. We're not going to be able to admit when we're wrong. We're going to struggle to apologize. Why is it so hard to apologize? Like Even as Christians, like at the center of our faith is this profession that we are so screwed up that it took God himself coming and dying for us, for us to be healed, and yet we get in fights with one another, and it's so difficult to say, you're right, and I was wrong, and I hurt you, and I'm sorry because we still live out of that old man so the real work towards wisdom and relationships it comes as we live in more and more into the life we have been given in christ where our lives are hidden with god in christ where we don't always have to be right where we can actually model a truer and a better way of being human because we model a way of being in the world where we we know that we're all sinners in desperate need of grace. Every single one of us. And when that truth is front and center, all of a sudden it, it enables you to show grace to others. You know, it's interesting in looking at the trajectory of Paul's life. Paul was a very righteous guy even before he came to faith in some senses. And... Looking at the trajectory of his writings, as Paul's kind of living in this new reality of what Christ has done, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul describes himself as the least of all apostles. So he's been humbled. Because you know, in Philippians, he writes about himself, and he's like, I was kind of the best. Son of Benjamin, born on the eighth day, you know, like, but the gospel of grace started going to work, and he's like, you know what, I'm the least of the apostles, Like Peter, James, those guys are awesome. Me, I'm a Johnny-come-lately. Like my eyesight's not that great. (laughs) Ten years later, Paul writes, about ten years later, he writes Ephesians. And in Ephesians, he describes himself as the least of all God's people. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? He was the least of the apostles, which it's kind of like, yeah, I'm the least of the Yankees. You know, it's kind of like, well, you're still a Yankee but the least of of all people. Paul, this is 10 years later. A few years after that, he wrote to Timothy. And in that letter, he told Timothy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Do not miss the trajectory here. Paul went from being, you know, the best most religious Pharisee that there was. The grace of God comes in his life, and then he becomes the least of all apostles. Ten years goes by, and he's actually, "Actually, I'm the least of all people. And then more years go by, and he says, I'm actually the worst of all sinners. Was Paul backsliding? Was he a worse human being by then? Of course not. He had the Spirit of God dwelling in him but he was getting to know Jesus more and more. And as that continued to happen, he realized, and he saw more and more clearly his own sin and his brokenness and his weakness. And that's where like an undeniable sign of Christian maturity is not when you start, you look around and you think, man, I'm just so much better than most people. An undeniable sign of Christian maturity is when you look around and you see yourself in other people's sins, you're like, yeah, I could totally do that. I'm capable of that. When there's difficulties in relationship, you're like, what am I bringing to the table? To quote Taylor Swift, you're quick to say, it's me, hi. I'm Right? Like, <laughs> like I think that's one of the truest things ever sung. And it's, it's really like part of being a mature Christian, is you recognize like, yeah, relationships are difficult because I'm showing up to them. And I'm showing up with my own brokenness and my sin. And so no wonder relationships are difficult. As we move to the Lord's table, we're reminded of God's grace to us, that that Jesus, he invites us into an entirely different way of seeing the world. That Jesus Christ, he doesn't come and say like, show me what you can do, prove yourself to me, get your stuff together. He comes into the world with his disciples the night that one of them is going to betray him and the rest are going to abandon him. Like the worst friends you can imagine. And he takes a loaf of bread and he breaks it and he says, this right here is going to be my body broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood that will be shed for you. At the center of our faith, Jesus put this meal. It's a meal that, it's paradoxical, it reminds us that we're sinners. Like every time we come to the table, if you're coming to the table like, man, I'm kind of nailing it at life, like hit batting a hundred or batting a thousand like you shouldn't come to the table because this is a meal for sinners. It's a meal for people who know their own fallenness. So it's a table that a meal that reminds us of our sin, but it also it grounds us once again into the grace of God and makes us a people of grace. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to take part in the Lord's supper. If you're not if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know where you stand with God. Uh, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but instead you take part in the life that Christ has come to bring. And pastors are available in this room during communion and afterwards to pray, to talk, to counsel if you've got questions. But let's all be remembered and celebrate and rest in the grace of God. Let me pray. Father, relationships are so hard. We thank you that you are a relational God who who didn't leave us in our sin, but you came and you didn't even save us from far off. You drew near to us and that you even called us your friends. So Father, I pray that we would continue to learn from your Son by the power of your Spirit how to do relationships well. I pray specifically for people here today who have broken relationships. Maybe with a child, maybe with a friend. I pray, Lord, that you would give them wisdom. Should they seek and pursue reconciliation? Is it wise to have the boundaries? Do they need more boundaries? These, these are such tough questions. Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom where it's desperately needed. You tell us to ask and you'll give it to us. And I do pray for broken relationships that that eat away at the souls of so many here, that you would bring healing and you would give us the courage and the understanding of grace to be able to go and say, it's me, I'm sorry. Here's how I've sinned. Let us walk in your grace and in doing so model to the world. Your love. We ask these things in Christ's name.
0: Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.